0: Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard.
1: What's on the, uh, the docket for today?
0: Well, I thought we'd talk about cancer.
1: Very good. very good very very important topic too hopefully i'm not
0: hopefully i'm not springing these topics on you at the last minute every time like i do i I do text you thank
1: you for giving me all of 30 seconds
0: (laughs) yeah exactly be like oh crap now i need to go read up on cancer before we do a talk
1: you know what it is it it's a very very important topic like um um we we did um cover a number of um cancer screening topics when we talk about periodic health examination um but you know the ninety nine topics um, does mention other aspects of of cancer uh, of cancer care, um, and you know what like cancer cancer is intensely you know is intensely personal too. You know I I think as clinicians you know we may have had family members you know or, or friends and stuff be be touched by uh, be touched by cancer, so it's intensely personal as well too.
0: Yeah, and that's why I like I like the family medicine approach to cancer. I mean obviously you need um, the specialist, the oncologist exactly. for the actual medical side of the treatment for a lot of it. But yeah, yeah like you mentioned, uh, two of the key features are really like, one of them is around everything outside of the cancer that might be affecting their life. And right. then, and then the other one is around all the side effects that they might get from, from cancer treatment. Exactly.
1: So exactly. And all those, all those complications. And I think that's important to, to me because like, you, you know, uh, imagine getting that diagnosis like it, you, you're in a state of shock you know what i mean like you are. you must literally be in a state of shock right yeah. and probably much of what the clinician is telling you about the next steps uh, at that first time that you hear it, it's still a complete shock right so uh, you know being able and I, you know we always talk about the, the family physician and the doctor patient relationship is so crucial um you know this is important, right, because your patients are often going to be asking you like what just happened here like what what does this diagnosis mean?" and oftentimes when they're hearing from the oncologist that first day or 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 when they uh when they get that information, you know stuff hasn't really sunk in yet, right so um oftentimes uh, um people people get care from their family doctor right. I know. I, I know a lot of the times, too, up in uh, where I work, you know, we're often making that diagnosis of cancer, and, and you're telling potentially your own patients that you've known for years about that particular, um, particular diagnosis. And I know when you have, when you're able to do that, the fact that you do have that relationship with that patient, you've known them for a few years, that can, uh, that can definitely help, right? Um, um, because, you know, additional factors that are definitely going to come into play in a rural environment. That you know, as you know, um, um, sometimes you know, additional uh, initial chemotherapy can't be given at your home community, right? Like you may have to go away for part of your your therapy, um, 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 and that just provides you know an additional complication to things.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and probably when in the same place where I work, um, we, we often make the diagnosis or, or have a good suspicion of the diagnosis before referral, and yeah. and one of the difficulties, uh, you know. I, I honestly, I don't think I I don't find it too difficult to tell people that they have cancer. I, I like having that opportunity with people that I know to do it properly and, you know, take yeah. the time to sit there and, and chat about things the the difficult part of it for me, and I, I don't know if it'll ever get better because you can't store all of that in your head, but you know, once they've had a chance to digest it, the, the immediate next topic is, you know, what does this mean for me? They're, they're hey. asking, they're acting asking you to prognosticate a bit and you know that's super difficult, especially because I'm not an oncologist and we don't even have a formal diagnosis yet so exactly um,
1: but, exactly so. so I agree with you totally um I agree with you agree with you totally um that's a very good point you know and 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 that's the thing you know we don't have um in many cases a clear you know often when we're making the diagnosis as a rural physician we don't have a clear you know, it's really hard to prognosticate and that's what people, I find, want, right? Like, well, what does this mean? What are the next steps? In addition to well, okay, well, what does this mean for my work? What does this mean for my job? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean? Like, and and I find additionally as well too, rurally, um, we give chemotherapy rurally, but oftentimes the initial chemotherapies are often given at larger centers, right? So, you know, and, and you're getting this chemotherapy over a, a prolonged period of time, right? So um, there's that sort of initial, you know, okay, I'm going to have to leave my, my home, leave my support structure. So um, um, I think as a family doctor to be able to, to, to be able to converse with your patients and provide them with that support is, is, is crucial.
0: Yeah, it's and that and, that and that as that you that. well know, that comes down to that the remoteness and, and partially the federal government involvement as well. Uh, particularly with new cancer diagnoses, I find it particularly difficult because our criteria for having um, um, a chaperone for transport basically means that the patient needs to be incapacitated, and often with cancer they're not, um, certainly initially, and so they're going down to you know the tertiary center for for a lot of tests for a lot of you know um, prognosticating if you want to call it that and discussions with their with their oncologist and they have no support there because their exactly. support can't afford to be there so exactly. I, I find it particularly tough to tell them hey no you don't get a chaperone sorry
1: yeah yeah no and and that's a, that's something that I've I've um, you know I, I i I find incredibly hard as well um, you know in the systems that we we sort of practice with there isn't that um, appreciation um for the fact that to get this kind of information um, by yourself um, you know in a city far away from home um, you know just kind of put yourself in your patient's shoes for a moment like imagine you've come down to get test X and all of a sudden you're seeing doctor Y telling you that you have a diagnosis of cancer and you don't have a loved one with you right or a support person there and you're in big city Z um, so that, that I, I think um, I, I think that policy really needs to be looked into and changed um, 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 changed significantly because uh, because it, it I feel that, that that is that is not a good thing to do to people so
0: yeah yeah no absolutely and uh, just to make sure we hit on all the key features, even before we get to the cancer diagnosis, um, you know, the one thing that, that family medicine is certainly really useful is advice around prevention, I think. Yeah. Um, there is one, and one thing I put in the study notes and I'll put in the show notes uh, as I was kind of researching this topic, there's a Cancer IQ uh, risk assessment tool that Cancer Care Ontario has that uh, yeah. I, th- I think is great. Um Be-
1: Cancer Care Ontario.
0: Yeah, there you go. There's There you go. Mike Mike's homeland representing there.
1: The homeland representing.
0: Yeah. Um so I mean you can always uh send patients that way. The other big, you know, kind of uh risk factors for for cancer that, you know, all patients should at least be aware of if they're not going to make lifestyle changes, uh, obesity, alcohol, uh tobacco's a huge one, sun exposure. Huge. Um, HPV infection, which will hopefully go away to a certain extent with the new vaccination. But yeah, just not to harp on that one particular issue so much, but I heard a really good talk uh, recently on um, health interventions and and prevention. The one thing that stuck with me is the biggest thing that you can do as a family doc, like better than all the treatments, all the prevention, seeing a patient for a lifetime for any other issue, if you can get them to quit smoking, if they are a smoker um yeah. it's it's huge it's the best it's medical or health in- intervention that we have
1: exactly exactly Qu- smoking cessation is right up there with vaccination is right up there with not taking your drinking water from where other people are pooping as far as public <laughs> health interventions right like if you think about it And and Brie, I'm glad you mentioned that particular point, right? Like, again, it's up there with things like, you know, vaccinations and not taking your drinking water where other people are pooping in terms of public health interventions. One of the most important things for family doctors to do is to get people to quit smoking, right? Um, And smoking cessation is a fantastic thing to do. So it is a really, really powerful public health intervention.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And been
1: linked to, you know, we went through it before. Been linked to different types of cancers, and has been linked to coronary artery disease and various other atherosclerotic manifestations. So, get people to quit smoking. Definitely, where you get your bang for your buck.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. And then uh, screening. We talk. I mean, screening is a huge part of cancer, but we thankfully we've covered. I mean, part of our population health screening for for average risk patients a exactly. lot of those are cancer diagnoses that you're screening for. So exactly, exactly.
1: So like colon cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, etc., cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Skin cancer is one that was in that topic, which is good that I thought they mentioned because um, right. there's not really much for interventions other than, you know, discussing it with the patient. This is back to my training in Australia. If they're in the sun a lot and, and not looking after themselves, then it can be a pretty powerful intervention if they decide to, you know, put on sunscreen and stay in the shade.
1: Exactly. There's a exactly. pretty
0: direct link from from you know prolonged sun exposure to to melanoma.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's a very, very good
0: point, Doctor Bouchard. Very good point.
1: So you can see a lot of a lot of um, um, a lot of cancer is is really you know what can we prevent, right? You know yeah, and that's absolutely. a huge, huge part of things, right? What can we uh, prevent? Because what do they always say? That great parable. An ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. Isn't that right, the integrator,
0: Dr. Baby Bouchard? We're metric. You need a better saying. No, I don't.
1: Oh, Wait, <laughs> integrator?
0: A, a, a milligram of prevention is better than oh, a okay. kilogram of cure.
1: Brady Bouchard, you are now officially a nerd, okay? <laughs> you are now the world's nerdiest person on the planet.
0: There we go. That's all right. Uh, uh, what's What else is on these topics? Uh, oh, yeah. So ongoing follow-up and support. I think... You know she touched on this. I think it's pretty pretty obvious to family medicine residents and and docs um that follow up with primary care is a big deal uh once you get the diagnosis and as you're going through treatment but um i would my point to add into that is often once they see the cancer center and they're on a treatment plan, there's no specific follow up like they may send back a note saying, please follow up with your family doc for x y and z tests exactly. um but I would tell the patient even up front I'm like you know what, you're going you're gonna to be in a whole kind of healthcare uh, grinder now of all these steps and all these investigations. Um, but you know what, maybe come back and see me, you know, once every couple of weeks, at least maybe once a month while this is going on. if If you don't have any other concerns, just so we can chat about how things are going and I can answer questions and, you know, I can make sure that we're not missing something missing the holistic picture and then everything that's not cancer too i mean their their health other than the cancer still goes on as well so exactly you still exactly. need the other ongoing preventative stuff and managing their blood pressure blah blah
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a very, very good point that um and and I think what we can do too as family doctors as well, because you know, it's it's cancer treatment is is really something, you know, there's there's about fifty trillion clinical trials always going on. Um um, and it can be very you know, patients are kind of go from you know, oh I you know, I may interact with my doctor once a year year, once every couple of years, to all of a sudden having like 50 billion tests and tons of investigations and different specialists. So, uh, you know, I've had so many patients talk, uh, describe this kind of information overload, right? Yeah. And yeah. and sometimes, um, and I think this is relevant for rural medicine um, as well, is is that, you know, medicine isn't just about content, it's also about context, right? And sometimes when you send the person to the tertiary care cancer center, you know, they're they're fantastic there, you know, like there, there are some fantastic cancer centers that we have in in, in Canada, you know, but don't necessarily assume that they're really going to understand potentially a rural context, right? Like the impact of traveling hours or housing, or how do you get kind of additional supports and stuff. So oftentimes as a family doctor, you may be able to get people access to resources that that are going to be able to to help them in that regard. You know, I've had patients just because of traveling is such an issue, you you know, just even connecting them with some resources to be able to get travel or get support. support while they're there, those things make a huge, huge difference, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Because I I think you're going to have an idea as a family doctor in your community, what resources are available, right? Um, 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 What resources um, um, are available or so, right? So I think that can be very valuable for our patients um, with cancer because, yeah, their care, you know, a lot of their care is going to be taken over um, um, by the oncologist. um, But you can, as a family doctor, kind of keep it real in terms of what community resources are available to them, right? Um, um, and, And keep it. Real and sort of what community resources are available to patients. So I think that's that's vital and that's important. And I love your point that, that remember other stuff still needs to happen. There's still re- other screening that needs to be done. Um, there's other um, preventative health maneuvers that still need to be uh, that still need to be uh, done. So I think that's very important uh, to be able to uh, to know. Um, I always found like I'll be honest with you. I always I remember in residency like cancer was like an area like I just did not feel comfortable with medically right because like you have a patient you diagnose them with a lymphoma and it's like literally they just went off and then next thing you know they're on all these crazy acronyms right chop hyper you know what i mean that's how oncologists speak right They speak yeah cool exactly. like, acronyms right and these acronyms are for like medications that you know i will never touch you understand and 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 i always found it a bit nebulous like that you know how did you feel about that brady like in your training or when you get like
0: yeah, well, I mean I I, I think I it totally it's depends not- on the medical school you're at. I don't think in residency, at least in Canada that we we cover it in much depth. And do I don't, I, and I, I, don't, and I, don't, I think it's
1: pretty standard we don't really cover it in that much depth.
0: Yeah, yeah and exa- and to be honest, I don't I, I think mean, it's good to have a healthy curiosity about what's going on in the in the chemo and radiation world as yeah. far as what they will generally do for a particular yeah. cancer. But yeah, the the acronyms around, you know, and they they tweak this and tweak that. I I don't think it's it's high yield for for my practice, and and honestly, the at least at the cancer center in in Saskatchewan, they do really an excellent job of of giving you a good summary on where your patient's at and where they're going, and exactly. and where where they would like you to be specifically involved.
1: Exactly, exactly, and I and I think that's the most important thing because cancer. Th- therapeutics are constantly changing, right? And there's so many clinical trials, there's so many new medications, new regimes. So, you know, I, I agree with you, Brady, I wouldn't worry too, too much about what the latest and greatest, you know, um, um, you know, regimes are, you know, I, I think that's kind of outside the realm, it, it's really to know, you know, and we're going to get to this and stuff, um, um, you know, the basics of, of what some of these regimes are, as well as, you know, how to deal with some of these complications that patients get.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and more like again, there's kind of more general complications that happen in in almost every cancer patient uh, under yeah. treatment, and then there's more specific ones. I think the general ones are definitely something that us as family docs we we should even screen for when you're seeing them, you know, because yeah. they may not be noticed. But I mean, the the common side effects of of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea definitely. Yeah. Um, parasyzes, peripheral parasyzes is pretty common with a lot of chemotherapeutic agents. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and and cardiac toxicity Uh, so cardiomyopathy yeah yeah is a big deal kind of down the road and and not something that you're obviously going to ask the patient about because they won't necessarily have any idea um but it has implications for for screening and also you know dose limits that the oncologist would know but total lifetime dose limits for some agents and then you know making sure that they don't have that heart sequelae afterwards they may get an echo they may you know just be screened for for heart failure symptoms
1: exactly exactly it's a really good point remember depression too right like that's something you always want to make sure um um that you are um you have on your radar as well right oh mike that's golden yeah yeah that's that's something you want to make sure that you have on your uh on uh on your radar as well you know so but yeah i agree um um so let's talk about some of these things like some of these more general and maybe we can get into some of the more specific ones
0: yeah absolutely Perfect. um Probably the one... Well, it, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, I'd say, is probably the one that patients know about ahead yeah. of time and, and worry about. Yeah. That, that and the hair loss, but there's really nothing you can do about the hair loss.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: But the nausea and vomiting, there's lots of uh, medications that have been tried or that you can't try. Some that are newer classes that are more effective, so the serotonin receptor antagonists on dancetron um granicetron all those agents yeah yeah, pretty awesome and then there's a kind of a new class that's um i think going to be more you know like every new drug it's expensive and and once it becomes more uh, commonplace in canada it'll get cheaper but the nk1 receptor antagonist so exactly i don't even know how to pronounce it Yeah, exactly. is the one that's apparently much more effective i haven't seen it yet
1: exactly exactly yeah so I, I you know i i don't think it's used like it's just so new and stuff and and you know when new drugs come out and stuff drug companies you know it's or, or insurance companies that type of thing within terms of covering it or so but yeah like it's it's apparently supposed to be this amazing wonder drug for 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 chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting um it's interesting like nausea and vomiting used to be like horrible like it was yeah. absolutely like before we had serotonergic agents we really didn't have very effective treatments right we really didn't have very effective um uh, um treatments and stuff so that uh, that whole class um, um really represented in my opinion um, um a real improvement in terms of managing this complication you know which is which can be extremely debilitating like imagine feeling nauseous all the time right like you just don't feel and and remember too like you're you might be going through chemo you're going through chemotherapy you're in addition to that you're in a catabolic state so you know you're not getting in nutrients you're not getting in you know the appropriate amount of vitamins. so it, you know the effects actually can be quite dramatic right so um, um, the effects can be quite quite dramatic right so definitely with um, with uh, the serotonergic age, so things like oldanzatron or um, um those were a significant, significant uh, a benefit. Um, and again, these new agents, you know, I haven't used them yet. I've heard a lot of buzz about them, but um, apparently they're even better.
0: Yeah, uh, the studies around them, uh, at least coming onto market, uh, look pretty promising. But yeah, Ex- I don't think it's getting a lot of use in, in Canada, at least where I practice or you practice.
1: Exactly, exactly. and stuff. But yeah. So we'll see. So nausea and vomiting um um yeah so definitely a major complication and stuff
0: absolutely uh diarrhea would be another uh Perfect. common one i think that that affects a lot of patients and i i mean a lot of these these complications are are common sense if you just think about how the agents work so i mean essentially they they prevent cell replication any part of your body that's replicating fast so your entire gut from your mouth to anus yeah, and your hair as well. It, it affects all of that area. So you get diarrhea essentially because your intestine is is, is just shedding and it's just exactly. not functioning properly.
1: Exactly. Right. Any cells that are more metabolically active or 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 mitotically active are going to be more affected by chemotherapy and stuff. So so definitely.
0: Uh. So diarrhea. So managing it. Um. Kind of like any other diarrhea. I mean, you want to make sure they're they're maintaining their their fluid balance. So increasing exactly. oral intake. Uh, and-
1: and make sure they don't have C. diff or anything, any other infectious source as well, too, if you can.
0: Yeah, exactly. If they spent any time in, in the hospital as an inpatient or, or with recent antibiotics. Um, other things, eating small, frequent, bland meals um, can maybe help um, more as a, a symptomatic thing rather than helping the diarrhea specifically. And then um, pyramide is really yeah, kind exactly. of the agent of choice.
1: Exactly. What about neuropathy, like numbness and stuff?
0: In in my reading and at least in my training, chemotherapy-induced neuropathies seem to be really much more resistant to therapy than you know other other forms of neuropathy. Exactly. Um, and I don't know if there's even you know looking into this, it doesn't look like there's a lot of therapies that are even typically tried if it, if they if it's known chemotherapy-induced neuropathy. I don't know if you've had different experience or.
1: It's true. It's true. You know, some people talk about like methotrexate, right? Which is an agent that's often part of a lot of chemotherapy regimes for, for very, um, for various cancers um, you know it's well known to cause a neuropathy and stuff and it may be related to b6 and b12 you know inducing that type of deficiency or so so sometimes you'll um, 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 you'll see people often supplement with
0: that they'll do once a week uh, methotrexate and then uh, folate on the other six days
1: exactly folate on the other six days or so so yeah. and and again so you know that's specifically for methyl trexate there's lots of other chemotherapeutic agents that have been associated with neuropathy and you know oftentimes you know I, I don't think we have a lot of good evidence that you know that sort of um folic acid prevention is going to work with those um type of neuropathies like we don't really have very good solutions for them or so and and whether or not you know i've read some reading about this and and whether or not it's actually because of the chemotherapy itself or some type of perineoplastic phenomenon that type of thing they're not really 100 percent sure
0: so. yeah absolutely the one um agent that seems to get some you or seems to be more useful i find in diabetic neuropathy and that you could try with chemotherapy induced neuropathy is is um uh duloxetine
1: okay yeah yeah so they have the duloxetines, you have the, um, um, and again, all these things kind of don't really have great evidence, but you know, in some cases you can consider trying it, the tricyclics, the pregabalin or the gabapentins, you know what I mean? And stuff like certain anti-epileptic drugs, if people have more painful variants of neuropathy, you know, but again, we don't have great, great evidence for them, uh, but you know, at all in, in certain- yeah,
0: exactly. There's a, the only reason duloxetines mentioned is that there, there is one study that was Uh, was clinically significant difference, but not a, not a big difference,
1: not a big difference. Um,
0: And yeah, amitriptyline and nartriptyline and those things um, don't have good evidence of benefit at all. Yeah.
1: Don't have the evidence and stuff. So, so again, you know, you, you, you have your sort of armamentium of of compounds that you can use for people with uh, neuropathy. But again, we don't have very good evidence um, for really any of them um, in people with, in people with uh, undergoing chemotherapy. Remember, remember depression, right? So keep that in mind right so keep that in mind
0: yeah and i think that's one we don't ever i mean any chronic disease um depression is going to be more prevalent um and you need to be able to catch that 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 incident because they do poorly with chronic disease we know and and you know cancer is not necessarily a chronic disease but it's it's chronic enough that it can affect your outcomes if you're if you're severely depressed your medic exactly. your medication compliance your you know your, your therapeutic alliance with your oncologist and your family docs so Exactly. Exactly. So definitely, definitely keep make sure your
1: spider sense is tingling for that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Doctor Bouchard.
0: That's kind of the more common ones. I know another topic that I didn't want to miss that you touched on before was, and you made a good point around kind of being aware of your local resources for for cancer patients and their families. The the key features for the nine topics mentions asking about you know finances and job and kind of the kind of holistic picture around them as well and. And I think um the one specific uh finance thing it's good to to be aware of as a family doc is there's kind of three types of insurance that can make a huge difference for patients if they have them um if they get a diagnosis of cancer um disability insurance being one of them critical illness, and then their you know kind of more usual supplementary or extended health insurance exactly. um the the critical illness insurance I would stick in the back of your head is something to ask patients when they get one of these diagnoses. Um, because they don't always remember that they signed up for it or maybe part of a group plan and it can make a huge difference. So,
1: and Brady, that is a very, very good point. It can make a massive difference, right? Like it can give you a fair bit of income support because, you know, we have patients all the time that sometimes these diagnoses, you, you know, it significantly affects your income, right? Like your income potential, right? And how are you going to pay your house? How are you going to pay your car? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like I have a lot of patients that have a lot of that concern, right? That yeah, that, exactly. has that concern. So when you're identifying resources, you know, that's so critical is that how can you get in, um, 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 income support or so, right? What uh, If you do have disability benefits, how, you know, is there some type of exclusionary period that applies, right? Like what what do you do for income support during that period to help answer those nuts and bolts questions You know where you can involve your local social worker if you can to kind of help you stick handle what sort of local community resources are available.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and, and you made the good point. The point I was going to make: um, the the critical illness insurance is nice because it's a a one time lump sum payment without a, a waiting period. If you get these kind of predefined exactly. serious conditions, Dis- disability can work better. If if you know if this becomes an an ongoing thing, and you, maybe your cancer goes into remission and comes back, but yeah. but often, most commonly, I'd say disability has uh, an exclusionary period or a waiting period. Um, exactly. and, and three months is pretty common and, and you know what, with some cancer treatments we're, we're, you know, you're done with them from diagnosis to remission or cure within the three month period. So you, exactly exactly not, it may not be of any help for you, but it may not be an,
1: exactly, exactly. So, you know, I, I think it's important to, you know, to involve your local social worker, you, you know, just making sure that people are aware of what resources that they have, right. Or what resources are available to them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Um, what else did they talk about? So another key feature is um, patients with a distant uh, history of cancer that you kind of have to be um, on the ball with any new symptoms that might be associated with that cancer. I think that one's common sense. Oh, if yeah, if yeah. somebody has a personal history of cancer, they're obviously high risk for that or any other uh, new cancer just because it can be metastatic disease. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is if if patients are diagnosed with cancer, be realistic and honest when di- discussing prognosis. And I think that's a, that's a really key thing. And that's kind of what I struggle with from the initial diagnosis prognosticate on is, is you don't want to, you don't want to make things up. Um, yeah. but you also don't want to give too much information up front as well. Right. Um, for patients that, you know, need time to digest, uh, anybody needs time to digest, um, you know, a serious diagnosis like that. And, you know, often I'll try and, Push, i'll try and defer it as much as i can until at the very least they've seen the an oncologist and got a formal diagnosis um and then as far as prognosticating down the road on how it's going to go i mean you i just feel you get yourself into a trap if you kind of hit that at all like you just you try and do the best and you be optimistic for patients but yeah um and until you get to kind of end of life care where things are a little bit more clear uh, yeah. i wouldn't touch it
1: yeah yeah well, you know what, and one of the things I found it useful to do is actually arrange a teleco- a teleconference um like with the oncologist and the patient, so all three of us are there, right, and we can have a discussion right um um um, so I found that actually really, really useful right um um to be able to have that uh, have that discussion i, I kind of at the initial sort of like, hi, we found a mass on the head of your pancreas. It's eight and a half centimeters. You understand? You have painless jaundice. You're kind of you're kind of going from there. you you're gonna refer that person to the oncologist, and then you can sit down. You're still trying to work on getting all of the information together, but just even having everybody even in that virtual space together it kind of gets everybody starting to use to everybody that we can all kind of know what the next steps are and that the oncologist can help provide some of that information right
0: that's awesome mike i, I that's a great suggestion I, we don't really have telehealth where i practice but i w- i would love it and man that would be super useful yeah,
1: yeah especially in the rural areas exactly exactly it's really uh it's, it's really, really useful and stuff, you know, so um, to be able to do that, because there's going to be a lot of face-to-face visits, of course, with the oncologist, but you want to make sure that, you know, that that you have that opportunity to be able to, if you can, and we can't do it all the time, I'd love it if we could be able to do it all the time, but, you know, even going from those initial... Phases when you're like, okay, this person has the pancreatic head mass, or there's the you know spiculated very large lesion in the left upper lobe. you understand and stuff with a big effusion there and a whole bunch of you know malignity looking lymph nodes to so yeah. take up. When you're involving the oncologist, so that you can start to have those kind of patient discussions with the patient there, right? And they can start to ask because you know one of the things, Brady, I understand you're totally where your concerns are but patients aren't stupid either right yeah, like they so, know so. that when i walk in the room and say we found something on the ct scan and it's not a pneumonia and it's not blastomycosis and it might be can you understand like patients are not stupid you don't understand yeah. Like, oh yeah not- and
0: like, and they, you could definitely they, say i mean I'm, I'm not saying don't say don't call it cancer like i'll say the patient you know what i'm 99 percent sure this is cancer but yeah. but that's kind of where it stops because because i don't exactly. know what the next step is
1: prognosticate exactly like and that's usually the question people want well okay i kind of understand it's cancer but yeah. like what are the well you know how am i gonna live like yeah how bad most, is this that's like kind of the
0: elephant in the room conversation right so yeah, exactly. yeah no that's a good point um did you just make up a word there malignity malignity i that's, like that it's that's just... word folks malignity, malignity lymph nodes lymph nodes yeah that's good Oh, uh, what else in here? I think we covered it's a big issue in family practice for sure, Um, but it's not a big topic for the exam, I have to say.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I think a lot of it, Two is really it, it's really focused on more the screening and prevention you know screening yeah. and prevention yeah. um and and really how to you know i i how to ensure your patients have enough support as you're referring them to the oncologist you know what i mean Absolutely. Um, and being aware of some of the common complications that patients patients get while undergoing chemotherapy beautiful beautiful
0: perfect that's
1: if i could summarize it
0: that was a beautiful summary time- mike
1: a summarizes.
0: A now, summarizes. What about, like
1: brady I, I know this is like maybe i don't know maybe you might not think this is directly related to the 99 but it does come up like you know about all like some of the other stuff that we get like let's say you're in you're in rural medicine and you have a patient and they're getting chemotherapy and stuff and they get you know some of the bad sequelae right you know we we talk about those types of things right Could we can we touch on them is that okay
0: go for it mike perfect the world is your oyster
1: Exactly, exactly. So things like, remember, our febrile neutropenia, folks, is badness, right? Yes, we, talked we talked about this, when we talked about in the fever talk, right? It's both fever plus neutropenia. I won't go into it too, too much, because we talked about this in the fever talk, um, but remember, febrile neutropenia can kill people. People need to be on early, broad-spectrum antibiotics, end of story, absolutely. and likely you're going to be transferring the vast majority these people out um your antibiotics um usually you refer to your cancer center or your local um um, infectious disease consultant to get some direction on which antibiotics to use because it depends on your rates of resistance because um um, to that a lot of the bugs in your particular where you are are they resistant to a lot of agents right because remember cancer patients are way more likely and people with febrile neutropenia are way more likely to get at gram negative organisms right so yep. you're definitely yep. going to want to call your um um your oncology colleagues and get you know at our place we like to use piptazo other places like to use mirapenem get people cultured up and most people are going to be transferred out right you do not want to dawdle on febrile neutropenia it can lead to badness quickly
0: oh absolutely yep.
1: excellent
0: commonly you end up with uh I'll I'll say the one, um, not caveat to it, but even more common than febrile neutropenia is uh, the febrile patient who has had recent chemo, w- but still with a decent white count.
1: There you uh, go. So they're just they're febrile, but yeah, they're not neutropenic.
0: Exactly, and so those are the patients that um, sometimes we end up sitting on and monitoring closely. Um exactly. And honestly, a lot of the time the fever resolves. Neutropenic
1: patients, right? They're febrile. But they're not quite neutropenic, but getting there, right? Exactly. And they come inside with a pneumonia or a pilo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And and those patients you can you know sit on with close follow up, and I, I I find honestly I find that happens more often than febrile neutropenia because the chemotherapy itself is um what do you call it thermogenic is that the term pyrogenic yes. pyrogenic there pyrogenic
1: thermogenic yeah. wow definitely. pyrogenic means causes a fever fire
0: it causes a fever.
1: But, very, very, but that's a very, very good point, right? Like you'll often have people come inside and they are febrile. They have a clinical evidence of an infection and they got re- recent chemotherapy. And yes, depending on the clinical circumstance, you'll feel. But um, 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 we'll often watch um, those patients and give them appropriate therapy, of course, depending on where we think their infection is. Um, but just keep in mind that um, febrile neutropenia is bad, really, really bad. And uh, you want to do your best to avoid it. What other complications do we have? Uh, remember, you can get things like um, venal obstruction syndrome. So you can get superior vena cava syndrome. Um, you get like a big PANCOAS tumor, a big tumor in your lungs and stuff. And you can affect venous return. Um, and usually when you get that situation, you have to send your your patient to your friend, the interventional radiologist, um, um, to put in a stent. Or your friend, the radiation oncologist, to help shrink whatever pushing on the actual system is that correct dr brady Bouchard?
0: yeah absolutely um and uh thrombogenic issues so remember that anybody who has cancer is increased risk of clot perfect um so they get when you're uh talking about the legs there they get you know peripheral clots they can get clots that migrate to the lung
1: Excellent. Excellent. I remember like the fancy new agents for treating like blood clots. They don't really have the evidence for patients with cancer quite yet and stuff. So you're still using older school stuff. And most of the time you're actually using low molecular weight heparin um, because we actually have evidence for that. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. What else we have? Tumor lysis syndrome. So you got tumor, like, so basically what ends up happening is that usually you see these oftentimes in hematologic malignancies, so not as much solid tumors, but but it is, but, you know, I guess it's possible you tend to do this in more high mitotic index hematologic malignancies, so yeah. your lymphomas and your leukemias and stuff, and basically what ends up happening is when you give chemotherapy, you start breaking apart cells, and when you break apart cells, the stuff that's inside the cells all of a sudden ends up being outside the cells, and that can cause problems, right? So your uric acid tends to go up. Your potassium can go up. Um, um, cancer cells have a lot of phosphate in them because they're constantly making, um, making, dividing DNA and stuff, and DNA requires phosphate and ATP and all that wonderful stuff. that Brady Bouchard will all explain to you in a moment because he's such a physiology whiz. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And your calcium tends to get lower because you have all this phosphate around. Um, So the big problem is is that you can get um, renal failure and the electrolyte abnormalities can cause your heart to stop. So you basically want to be aware of who gets tumor lysis syndrome. So there's definitely higher-risk cancers versus um, uh, lower-risk cancers. So higher-risk stuff tends to be more hematologic malignancies. Lower-risk stuff tends to be more like solid tumors, you know what I mean, that just have a uh, a lower rate of it. And your treatment... Um, is essentially preventing, you know, lots of fluids. Um, there's always that debate about whether or not bicarb works or alkalizing urine works. I'm going to leave that to the good oncologist to decide what the, uh, what the verdicts, um, are. But it really is, um, hydration and watching for it, right? And, and giving things to counter the electrolyte abnormalities. So, um, the uric acid, we like to give allopurinol. Um, we will give agents that, um, 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 affect um, purine and, and pyrimidine biosynthesis and stuff, so you don't produce as much. Um, we'll treat the hypocalcemia. We'll treat the hypophosphatemia as well, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to consider it just to simplify everything in my mind. I consider it similar to crush syndrome. So, you know, if you have trauma and a and a partial amputation, or you know, when you get that circulation back, essentially you just have all this badness coming towards your kidneys. Um, along with electrolyte abnormalities and so so giving a a reasonably isotonic fluid like normal saline um, is kind of the mainstay of therapy and then and then monitoring for monitoring for those electrolyte abnormalities um, and and ECG would be useful if you're if you're worried about cardiac issues
1: perfect perfect yeah so you're really looking at you know various uh, various electrolyte abnormalities and you know really the bad the bad thing, all of those electrolyte abnormalities can lead to badness. Um, your uric acid can lead to a pretty nasty AKI and stuff and, and renal failure and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And renal failure is the enemy of chemotherapy because doses and medications need to be adjusted and they don't behave as normally um, as they would if your kidneys were not injured. So you just want to be aware of that. So that's the, fam- the famous tumor lysis syndrome. Can we think of any other people put in like epidural cord compression or something like that as well too so you have tumor in your axial spine and you can get epidural cord compression it can present like caudic quina syndrome it can be badness so just think about it people with metastatic disease in their spine when they come inside the emerge with back pain take that seriously
0: yeah absolutely
1: Perfect, perfect. And they're often going to need urgent surgery. Um, um, You can sometimes temporize while you're waiting for the medevac to take them to tertiary care center. Acts with a bit of steroid.
0: Yep. Steroids are wonderful for inflammation.
1: There you go. Steroids are wonderful for inflammation. Do we have anything else? We talked about tumor lysis syndrome. We talked about um epidural cord compression, um, superior vena cable syndrome. Um, um, yeah, I think that's it. Oh um, um hypercalcemia, right? So a lot of um a lot of bone tumors, um, a lot of bony metastases can result um, um, in hypercalcemia, um, yeah. um, so hyper, you can get malignant hypercalcemic syndrome and stuff, so um, um, just be aware of that as well too right So if the person has um, a malignancy, um, especially if they have a lot of bony burden, um, that can happen and remember, hypercalcemia can cause you to go delirious, right, so just keep that uh, aware. And our treatment is usually, um, um, basically, you know, preserving the kidneys and getting out the calcium.
0: Yeah, right? exactly. There's kind of the, the two ways you can get it: the kind of multiple myeloma way, which is, you know, bone breakdown and you're actually getting more calcium, or you can get it the paraneoplastic syndrome, um, with small cell lung cancer is kind of the, the, the typical one. And so physiology us
1: remember the parathyroid hormone related protein.
0: Exactly. There you go. Oh, exactly. yep. Beautiful.
1: Excellent. Holy moly. So we have some of those complications. So again, you know what? And again, you're going to be um, um, relying on a lot of your oncology colleagues, um, you know, for guidance in this. And, you know, I found that the vast, vast majority of cancer centers are fabulous, and they actually want to hear about those complications, right, and will accept um, patients and transfer. Um, Usually, you know, for those serious complications, like the vast majority of those patients are going to be um, at the tertiary care center, right? You might see them initially at your local um, um, rural medicine facility, but you're going to be transferring the majority of uh, people out. Um, Um, yeah. Just because um, you, you know um, you're, you're going to want to be able to get them to that specialized center, because oftentimes it means making adjustments to chemotherapy, right? And you can't do that really Right. Absolutely.
0: Awesome stuff. Okay, Mike. Thanks for the chat. Have a good day. alrighty You take care. Later. Bye.